Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Hello everyone and welcome back to a new episode of Le Corner from La Source. We're very much happy to have you here and we're happy today to be with Kevin Hall, one of my former UEFA colleagues and we've been driving a long way since then. And, and Samuel, the, hi guys, how are you guys doing? Hey JB, good to see you again. Uh, <laughs> doing very well, doing very well and good to meet you Sam. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Great to be here again for another episode. Yeah, Kevin, that's been quite a long time. Uh, we're remembering back on the pitch in Lyon, uh, like kicking the ball from time to time during the lunch break. That was quite quite good moments actually. But uh, we'll not too much into details about this. Uh, for for the people that are listening to us, uh, and we and we are pleased. Like we we know we have more and more weeks after weeks. But can you can you briefly present yourself, Kevin, from just like personal uh, backgrounds and professional as well? Yeah, of course, happy to. So my name's Kevin Hall. Um, I currently work for a sponsorship consultancy called the Value Exchange. Mm -hmm. um, and my career, I'll, I'll explain and come on a bit more about what we do in a second. Um, but my career has generally been in media and sports sponsorship. So I, I started off when I left uni. I went into media sales with Channel 5 in the UK um, and was there for six, seven years before stumbling into the sports industry um, because okay. I'm, I'm a huge football fan. And I, I, was it the dream? Did, did you want, it to, did you want it to, to work into the sport industry or was it by coincidence? Or? Um, I'd love to say it was a big plan, but actually coincidence. Um, <laughs> Because I'm, I'm a football fan, my team in England is Reading, which is a rubbish team in, Red, in, in, in England. And, and like most people, was at lunchtime reading the team news or whatever on the website, seeing what was going on. And I noticed there was a job going for a business development manager at the club. And I was, it got me thinking. I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Let, let's, let's give it a go. And I, I'm obviously from that area originally. So I thought, yeah, go for it. And then one thing led to another, got the job. Um, which so from good. Channel 5, you moved to, to Reading, so yeah, exactly. from the TV to a football club. Exactly. Right. exactly. How was the transition? Um, good and bad, I guess. Good in the sense I could bring a lot because I sort of understood generally how advertising and marketing worked. That sounds a bit arrogant, mm. but I kind of understood sort of how my agency world and brands and how it sort of fits together. But then it was quite a clash because going to a club like Reading is quite a small club and it's quite a local club. Mm. So okay. the expectations were very different. Of you, you, Yeah, it was, it was quite a different experience. To okay. Enjoying. Now, in terms of like professional like skills required or is it because or is it just the culture probably between more, like a, a big, yeah. Probably more the culture side that was different. The mm -hmm. skills are the same because it was a, generally a sales or business development type roles on on both sides so the skills that you have stand you in good stead um and quite a lot of people end up going from media sales into sports sponsorship i find um mm. so yeah this the skills are fine it was just more the culture i guess of of going from sort of central london to a smaller club outside of outside of london was 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 interesting <laughs> and it was 
it was it was great because we were in the Premier League at the time, um, but okay. we got relegated that season. So it very quickly changed from hey, we're we're selling the Premier League to relegation into the next division. So it was yeah, very mm-hmm. yeah. yeah you it was a lot. Did you stay for the next season after, or uh, um, I stayed for a bit. I stayed for a couple of years. So I stayed for for most of the next season. Um, okay. So I kind of got one experience in the Premier League and one experience. And how was it like, like Premier League, and then being like second division? Uh, well, I guess in your daily job, in terms of like you were saying, like we were selling the Premier League, and then I think it's no longer the case. So how did you manage that, or how did you? I guess the the interest just naturally falls off because all the local businesses are. It was a novelty at that stage. It was the first time the club had been in the top division. So the novelty of seeing Man United, seeing Liverpool, seeing all these teams play was massive and the demand was huge across hospitality and advertising and things. And then when you drop back down to the championship, the demand just goes away. And it it yeah. means that you have to be nice, remember to be nice to the local businesses that support the club which I think is a challenge. A lot of teams who go up and down have that challenge of keeping their existing businesses happy, um, mm. which is really important, and not sort of pricing them out of the of the market. Okay, cool. Uh, and then like, I'm just like fast-forwarding your, your career, but mm. after that you moved directly to UEFA? Or, uh, uh, no, I went to the FA, to, to the English FA. All right, all right. Um, so I joined there in a in a role focused on biz dev and licensing, um, and then okay. on to partnerships as well. So I was there four or five years um, managing England. So from TV, you moved to biz dev, and from there, you've been always into like uh, sponsorship, uh, licensing, and and this world, right? Yeah, exactly. Sponsorship, both the sales side and management side, and licensing as well. Um, and okay. yeah, then from from the FA to UEFA. Um, looking after UEFA's national team competition sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the Euro mainly? Exactly. So Euro 2016 yeah. was the big big project. Big One project. question for you, actually, because I'm, I'm assuming there were a lot of differences moving from reading, uh, writing, uh, as I mispronounced it, uh, to, to the FA. Is the, the way the FA is structured and the, your position over there very similar to the way that UEFA operates? Or was it a very big transition moving from a national federation to an international one? Um, it was quite similar, probably more similar, because the FA is quite a big association in, in terms of number mm. of staff and they're quite well organized and things. So it wasn't such a big transition. Um, I guess the big difference was more of a cultural thing, just working across nationalities and across Europe and more of a global and European perspective. So dealing with sponsors for the FA was largely sort of England team sponsors who are focused more on England, clearly, whereas you're dealing with the HQs of McDonald's, Coke, etc. So it gives you a great global perspective. Um, and also getting to deal with all the different other federations and at, at UEFA was great as well. So. And and local club, I mean, a, a smaller club to uh, one of the leading federations uh, and one of the oldest as well. How is that? I mean, did you have like a big gap or not that much? No, not not really such a big. I, no, I didn't really find it too much of a too much of a gap to be honest. Um, mm. I, I think it's just more down to personalities, and if you there's not like a big skills gap because you if 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 you know what you're doing and you you can apply it to different scenarios. I think. 
Yeah. All right. Uh, and one of the questions I had before I forget is mm. like uh, you mentioned uh, UEFA and your role uh, in terms of like national team. Uh, I know there were the, the Nations League. So were you involved as well in the, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe deep diving in or like diverting a little bit from, from what I had in mind, but I mean, Nations League is a new competition for national team yeah. uh, and you were part of it, I guess. So how, how was it like? I mean, from, from just like, you know, the Euro has, has an history, we'll mm -hmm. have 60 year, uh, but a Nations League, like at the beginning, no one really knew about it, understood the format or anything or the final yeah. four. Uh, for you, how how the experience was like? Can I? I'll, I'll answer yeah. your question in a second, but I'll go I'll, I'll go back a step one more because the, the reason I joined UEFA was also because of the European qualifiers, which oh, were centralised. Yeah. So that was why the role came up and the reorganisation of European football. So I sort of mm -hmm. had that experience from the start with European qualifiers being centralised and kind of creating a talk. A competition in adverted commas and so for to, those who are listening to us and don't know is like in the past or before it was centralized like each national team was uh having the rights to actually go and sell their matches for their friendlies or their official matches but then after there's been a decisions to centralize it at UEFA level to make it more consistent with like what we're doing with the euro and and so that's that's how the job came in and that you were Uh, hired for, for with all right yeah correct um so i okay. so it's similar experience obviously the qualifiers was a, a bit more complicated and then nations league came about uh, but the the similarities are both huge education pieces because when you're trying to explain or sell it they're both quite complicated and as many <laughs> as many videos or slides that you go through it's it's quite hard to get your head around and you certainly saw people it people don't understand it yeah no and and i but what's interesting i think with the nations league in in hindsight because i i left before it was launched so i had all the i think it was all the complicated bit pre-launch because you're trying to explain it ah how does this work and the media are trying to get their head around it who does who plays who and what happens <laughs> but once football starts people kind of get it and they see the benefit and then they know and they see it and they have seen the final four and they understand the version of it and now yeah. they they know they have seen the trophy as well and they understand it yeah i mean i yeah generally i think it's it's clearly a good thing making more competitive matches and more friendly but it's still a challenge because you still have the challenge of national team football i think generally there's a big thing of, of interest certainly in certainly in england of people when international football comes about people are almost like, oh we don't the premier league's not on there's that kind of feeling so okay it's, it's really important to keep investing in in national team football and it's, it's yeah, that's a bigger bigger project than just me <laughs> mm. and how long do you think like is sorry Sam, like i'm just thinking because you said pre-launch was even more important or but how long did it take actually like in terms of like putting all these together educating uh, raising awareness about it prior to launch like how, how long did it take good question um i can't remember it must have been a good year or two uh, of because again i was mm -hmm. a small part of it on the sponsorship side clearly then you've got the the wider marketing team competition teams yeah. all educating and promoting in different ways i mean clearly marketing promoting to 
consumers as well as the media guys to to media to explain but then competitions mm. or the all the teams and players taking part so it's yeah it's a kind of team effort across different things Eight, 18 months to 24 months more or less at least yeah i'd say i'd say something yeah. yeah i'd say okay sam did you have something to to add on that or it was basically the same question uh but just w- one question that makes sense i i believe is how is it structured? So UEFA organizes every everything. Was there some reluctance at the beginning from the different associations, especially the strong ones that maybe were making good enough revenue or were scared that they would have a smaller cut of the revenue once UEFA came in and decided to centralize the, 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 the organization of this league? Yeah. So, well, for the, for the European qualifiers, the, the media rights were all centralized. And then the mm-hmm. sponsorship rights were either not centralized at all. So the big federations kept all their rights. Some gave half their rights, so the medium ones, and some gave them all to UEFA. So it was a challenge of sort of packaging them up into into a saleable sponsorship yeah. property. So does that does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it was maybe around the, the Nations League that I was also discussing it because I understand the qualifications are, are probably smaller. So the interest, like there's a rational in, in, in giving some liberty there and in centralizing afterwards, probably realizing that the, the organizations aren't, do, aren't doing a good enough job. But around the Nations League, it feels like there were a lot of pretty tier one friendly matches, which I believe uh, the most of the income was coming to the Federation. Um how did you convince the big national uh, federations to actually support that initiative? Yeah, good question. Probably one slightly above me, above me at UEFA, if I'm <laughs> completely honest. Um, but I think the arguments of improving football and clearly making the most of national team football were, were key. And clearly a revenue thing because of centralized revenues and increasing the overall pot for the game is it comes into play as well. So kind of those two main themes, I think. On this one, Sam, I think the idea is more to say like by by joining forces, you increase the the size of the cake and actually the tier one will get even more of what they are having. and the tier two or tier three uh, national associations call them the way you want, but we'll also get more. So actually by joining forces, you just increase the size so that you yeah. make sure even when you redistribute, you, they still have an incentives to go in. And actually the value as well of the competition makes it more attractive as well from a, from a pure on pitch uh, side of things. Yeah, hundred percent just from it. But, but it's good to know that even for a nation's league, that strategy created more revenue for each federation uh, because yeah. the assumption could have been that the bigger ones would have been making more money by themselves, organizing their own friendly matches uh, rather mm. than having centralized because you could have thought that that money was redistributed to smaller uh, federations, but it's not still, so it's an easy conversation yeah. actually. Yeah. It's an easy one, but part of the, yeah, part of the uh, rationality behind it, or that was also one of the use cases or one of the reasons to do it is like, once you centralize, you, you make it, uh, I mean, you have a better product and so you, you can also like, increase the sale. So that's that's the idea behind it as well. Yeah. Uh, and so actually even the, the smaller associations get more if they were alone. So the idea is more to say, okay, we are, we are partners. So that the idea is more, is more behind this. Um, okay, Kev, just like Wi-Fi and everything in, 
in football from a club to national associations. I mean, you've been climb, you've been climbing the ladder, uh, and then you move back to London, right? Yeah. You, you left UEFA and you moved back to London, still in the same role. Uh, I think you you left like three years ago, something like that. Yeah, I think so. Something like that. How time has flown, but yeah, <laughs> I, but I stayed within sponsorship, um, but moved sports. So I joined the world the motorsports and joined the world of Formula E. All right. Um, How is that different, actually? Quite like, we different. We had Formula E and Alpine uh, on our podcast recently. But... Ah, okay, cool. So I, yeah. I, I, I saw it, actually. Um, yes, I, so I joined a team called Neo. Um, have you heard of Neo? Yeah. They're a big Chinese electric vehicle manufacturer. Um, so in Europe, not many people have heard of them. So I won't be offended. Um, but in China, China I did my de my desk research. I, I did a bit of desk research line. Yeah, no, I, I knew you would, but just for the listeners, <laughs> I, I knew you. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're a huge Chinese electric vehicle company, um, and I was responsible for heading up partnerships for the Formula E side of uh, the, the Formula E team, which was based in the UK. So very, yeah, very different because sponsorship was kind of new almost um obviously the team had been established to them mm. yeah to to them as a organization it was a very new organization generally um <clears throat> excuse me so rather than going from somewhere like an fa or uefa where sponsorship is very much part of the bottom line mm -hmm. everyone knows it and understands it it was kind of starting from scratch and trying to yeah educate and develop things and yeah no so it's very the different. processes in place and yeah and, and, and okay And it was just like, it was not just advising, it was also like uh, uh, managing the sales and, and the whole process, I guess. Yeah, so when I, when I first joined, it was, it was focused on sales. But then over, uh, after about six months or a year, I just took over all the partner, like partnerships management as well. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So um, very, very good experience in Formula E, very different sport because it's, it's new and they can do different things and adapt and it's probably unlike to which extent it's new to it i mean because we'll hear about the booster and all this mm. kind of new stuff in terms of like rewarding the fan or making them more at the core and yeah from your i mean from where you've seen it to which extent is it really new or truly innovative or trying to change a bit you know like not the format in itself but trying to to change things in terms of uh, rewarding and engaging the fans Yeah, I, I think you've just mentioned the main things, really, like the fan, but like ways that fans can actually have an impact on the sporting event is pretty rare. Yeah, um, right. So doing things like that and just trying to trying to be innovative is something I can't really imagine a, a football or a rugby or a cricket doing because there's so you know hundreds of years of history, and then changing mm -hmm. the rules of the game would probably not happen. Um, so they they definitely do things like that. But then on the flip side, motorsport sponsorship, I found, can be quite reliant on logos and badges and B2B business as well. So it's kind of a clash of both worlds of sort of forward facing, but motorsport can be sort of re overly reliant on branding and awareness, I think, as well. Okay, I see. And then after you, so from football and all the ladder, <laughs> motorsports, and then now rugby or I mean, or you have different clients. I guess it's multi-sports or you, you, yeah, you have so different clients. No, exactly. So my role now is for a consultancy called The Value Exchange. Um, All right. And we're 
if I give you the history, basically, we were, we were set up about five years ago by a guy called David Peters, who originally set up Cara sponsorship sort of back in the back in the day. So Cara, big media agency, and then transitioned mm-hmm. into MKTG as well. So his his background is very much on advising brands on sponsorship, building sponsorship strategies and things. Um, and his business partner, a guy called Jamie Wilson, came on board a couple of years ago. Um, and his background is perform and design and also media with ITV and Channel 5. So kind of digital brand point of view. More on the data and digital side of things. Exactly. Um, And what they found increasingly is obviously when they were working on briefs from brands and then going to sports, they would get responses back from sports, which were some good, some bad, but kind of average. And they thought, well, Mm. why don't we sell on behalf of sports as well and bring our knowledge of brands and digital into, into how we sell things? Um, and I knew the guys over the years from from different things, and then we started talking last summer, um, and I started, yeah, started sort of back end of last year, September, October time, mm, to, to okay. launch a launch a rights I, owner sales site. Cool. Okay, that's the you are helping me a lot because that's the perfect transition. I mean, if I if I invited you here, it's, it's mainly like I've like I've told you is. Uh, how we've moved from from sponsorship to to partnerships, and just like the story you've been saying is like the value exchange. So the value in terms of okay, maybe we can better help rights holders or sports organizations in terms of how we deliver or package the rights and how do we activate them. And I remember there is something written which is like creating winning partnerships for brands and rights owners. So I guess for me is like why is that important and I mean, you, you've been answered it in terms of like the the co-founders have seen the value, but I would like to hear from you in terms of like, why is that much important today like for sports organizations? Well, it also goes back to our name as well, the value exchange, that because we think there's give and take mm. on both sides. I think to create a winning partnership, both sides have got to have a vested interest in it succeeding. It can't just be, do you want to buy this for 20 million? And then I don't really care if it works. It's, it's got to be, how does it yeah. work? Do we align in terms of values and what we're trying to achieve? And in, sense, it, yeah. in terms to, to this end, I'm, I'm a bit digressing again, but does this mean it has changed a bit the timeline in terms of like it's less short-term partnership or just like eyeball or boards and it's more like a long-term partnership or does it has no effect necessarily on a timeline or, or the lens of the partnership? To be honest, I think both. I, th- I think I don't think there's a clear answer. I think if, mm. if you're looking at huge, long, big partnerships of big sporting properties that clearly they're going to be long-term and have huge long-term objectives, but that's not to say other sports might be a bit more short-term and opportunistic if you're just looking mm. at a media buy to get quick brand awareness, then you might want to buy something that is just built around, you know, branding and led boards and things so it, it depends on the objectives of the sponsor as well to be honest and, mm. and i think that's what we saw is a lot of a lot of sports federations and teams were just selling do you want package a b c and d rather than thinking okay i'm talking to this brand what do they want how do i shape it and how do i do it and I, a lot of okay. people claim to do it but don't think they really do do it okay yeah so that, that's the massive change like in terms of but long in the sport industry was okay. We have these kind of packages for sponsors. 
whether you take it or not. And now it's a bit like, okay, how do we make it like a win-win? And if you come to us, it's because you have these objectives. So how do we help you achieve those KPIs or those objectives? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. Actually, is that one thing that's common now that brands come to you saying, okay, we have an objective or we come with a technology which believes can help us achieve that? Like say an organization is interested in gathering more first party data um, for, you know, like for their internal usage. Is that something that often happens or is it more you put together the packages and you pick out of those what is the most convenient to the to the interested sponsor? Um, well, we're normally we'll sit down with the brand or the prospect and create a brief together over what they're trying to achieve and what their objectives are and then just try and work out who the what the best platform or property is to achieve those objectives so yeah it's that simple so you, yeah so you usually have enough bandwidth to actually do that kind of workshop that exchange of thought process then find the right technology and then deploy it for the for the for the next cycle you have enough ahead time to be able to 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 follow that workflow yeah yeah absolutely it it well for me, like being on the data side, um, how much the partnership now instead of the sponsorship as it used to be done, like has helped maybe sports organizations to be more data driven? Is it is it something that actually brands have helped a lot uh, sports organizations to be like aware of and to understand because they came in and they were like, okay, our goal or our metrics are X, Y, Z. And how can you help us delivering those? And so actually, instead of saying, okay, we, you will be on all the boards or on television on the hair and there's this, this amount of audience or blah, blah, blah. It's how can maybe it's more around the engagement or maybe like Sam mentioned it, first party data. So on the data side, how, how, what is the impact of brands on sports organizations and to which extent that matters today? Um. I think they've had a huge impact and it matters, it, it matters hugely <laughs> is the short answer. <laughs> um, but think- you have many brands coming to you because I guess that's a bit the questions from Sam in terms of do you have a lot of technological or big platforms brands coming and say, we have these, these products or we have these KPIs in terms of data. How can we use sports properties to achieve those or, or not? Not personally. Not over the not over the clients that we've been dealing with over the last mm-hmm. few months, I'd say. Um, but I know it's sort of going back to the original question. I, th- I think brands have forced rights owners to move quicker and develop things in data that they probably wouldn't have done unless they'd been under pressure to get those deals done. Um, and COVID has only accelerated that because. Okay. fan data and fans not being in the stadium has meant they've had to rely on other streams of revenue. Um, I think it's also the challenge for rights owners is who can, is investing the right amount of money and resource into data because someone like a UEFA or the bigger football clubs have those resources, whereas smaller ones don't necessarily have it and, and understand it well enough or ha- that's that's the key thing yeah. i think for me so certainly at uefa they had a da- sort of data strategy and it was crucial in terms of 
delivering partners such as Booking.com and Expedia and the, these which were just centered on data um, and wouldn't just wouldn't have been done if, if there wasn't a wasn't a data um, proper data. Yeah. Okay, I, I was about to ask you: Do you have concrete examples? So you, you just mentioned Expedia or Booking uh, that come in, in football with Wefa. Uh, do you have others, or would you be willing to 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 explain? I mean, for some of our listeners, sometimes it's a bit like you know we talk about it, but we don't know really what's behind or. Yeah. What what is the strategy, or what what are the needs, or why Booking dot com is coming to a weather, or maybe maybe you have other examples in in other think, industries. No, of course, I, I think Booking is one of the best examples. Um, without going into anything too confidential, mm-hmm. their their importance to UEFA was around travel and accommodation, and clearly around the Euros, you have millions of people trying to access tickets um so not just the actual ticket buyers but millions who are trying to access it and that presents a huge opportunity for booking to target them with hotel and travel solutions so mm-hmm. it's a perfect way to tra- sort of so uh, to be the lending platform for exactly. all these people traveling during the euro exactly so it was perfect for, for the sort of 15 probably the numbers are even bigger now but it was around about 15 million or maybe more that were trying to access mm-hmm. tickets to euro um so it's it's a perfect way for them to target those fans okay have you seen similar deals in the sport industry like maybe with other rights holders or uh, i've seen it with similar deals with with their man expedia doing similar things mm. with, with other rights owners as well um, there is a very interesting, now that you explain it, there is actually a very interesting collaboration between Airbnb and the IOC actually yeah. around the next Olympics where for those exact same reasons, okay. it makes a lot of sense for an Airbnb to put the big bucks against it. Because one thing that's also hard to understand from an external perspective is how do they measure the ROI around such big investments? Uh, so I'm assuming the COVID situation is probably harmful to our Airbnb. But somehow, you know, they're, uh, I'm assuming they're still getting the value out of it because they proceeded with the collaboration regardless sure. of the situation. No, and you, that's a really good point you mentioned because it's that industry is so built on ROI and tracking and they develop all their own tools and their analytics and things. And they can very quickly model, okay, if we get this many ticket buyers and they, they can work out the maths behind it to see if it's mm. rather than just purely. If it's worth it or not. Exactly, yeah. rather than oh, I can get this much media value on the boards, which does X, Y, Z, which again, that's, that has a return in itself, though, if you're driving brand, brand awareness, clearly, but um, it just opens up. It's less informed or it's less data-driven or, or proven by the data in terms yeah. of clicks or conversion rate or stuff like that. Exactly, exactly. Right. And, and I know, uh, and again, yeah, a, yeah, a couple more with, I know certainly at UEFA dealing with the likes of Hope, and Panini during the Euro 2016 tournament, they had an online collaboration around trading cards, which was run on using UEFA data, which performed massively, really, really well compared to how Coke's expectations and similar experiences on other sponsors who have collaborated on data and, and worked together, getting much better results using rights owner data rather than the brand data. And actually, now that you're involved in the Rugby League World Cup in 2021, so much smaller scale, very different type of, mm-hmm. you know, organization. And so 
obviously sponsorship that would would probably be very different than you know the brands that we have been mentioning right now how mm. how much is it the same job or a very different one because the needs on the other side aren't the same and you know are you are you regardless selling some packages for you know um traveling uh for the traveling industry in the same kind of similar way or are you targeting really different types of brandings uh yeah, brands oh, that are activation. looking at more exposition yeah. and brand awareness yeah because it's, it's too complicated to do something else exactly and ju just for your listeners so um rugby league world cup is one of our clients um and we're selling sponsorship on their behalf um it's a it's a good question we sell it in a slightly different way um if this answers the question we we tend to focus more on the the social impact of the tournament and the benefits it will bring to local communities because the tournament mm -hmm. we explain them more about the tournament in the background because it was it was hosted to bring change in deprived communities in the UK um, which is why the UK funded it so much so the, there's real clear metrics over how it's going to improve communities and improve mm -hmm. people's lives so a lot of what we do is finding partners that share this vision on social impact um, and we also tell so you have a story you have a story behind the competition that helps you in terms of like bringing to life correct. a partnership correct so it's slightly different from a from a we, we don't really lean too heavily on the data side of things because it's a it's a slightly mm -hmm. different event um, we also lean heavily on other stories such as diversity and equality because it's the first time ever that a major sporting event has hosted the women's wheelchair and men's tournaments together so that's another lens we use um, so you you can have brands or partners coming to you that want to showcase a bit more in terms of diversity and correct. in this space and so okay correct okay, and then but then it, i guess it shows sports sell in different ways and sports use different things depending on a brand's objectives because also all the games yeah. are on the bbc in the uk so that means actually from a media value point of view it's pretty massive because we'll have really good numbers So if you are looking mm. for brand awareness, we can tick that box. So the principal sponsor is a company called Kazoo, who you might be familiar with. Are there secondhand? My name. You, yeah, the UK listeners will will definitely be familiar. They're a secondhand car um, platform that's that sell online, and they've okay. there's basically them and another player that have shaken up the market in the UK, and they they've invested huge amounts in sponsorship across different sports. So okay. every time you look at a sport business, you see Kazoo signs a deal or their competitor, Cinch, signs a deal. Mm. So there's a massive competition between the two, which is good for the rights holders. Exactly. exactly. So the demo, the demographic from, from the rugby league, if we focus on this specific um, World Cup, uh, yeah. it's very much UK. It's very much like it's primarily to target people within the UK because you were mentioning like for big events like the Olympics or the Euro, it's it's international. Uh, we're talking in millions of fans all across the globe, and you have that's why you have a booking or an Airbnb. But here, it might not be as much into data, but still, you have some specific target into a specific market for which some of the the brands come in. Yeah, I, I think UK is the most important because of where it's hosted. Um, it is very much a global tournament because it features 32 teams and 21 nations mm. um but rugby league is 
interest is dominated by the UK, Australia, and New Zealand are the three big markets for the, the sport. Mm. Um, it has a big global audience. That the TV audience is 150 million or something. So it, it, do, it do, does good numbers. But naturally, where we are, we're based in the UK and the tournament's in the UK. So we're focusing on brands that are, that are looking at the UK. Um, mm. We've also tried okay. we, we've tried a bit of outreach to Australian and New Zealand brands because the sport is huge um, down under. And one thing checking out, and it sounds like you've been doing a very decent job because I see a lot of logos partnering with the competition. Um, so I'm assuming also that in terms of the strategy, we know that you know UEFA, FIFA, those big organizations really try to make the, those collaborations very premium, try to limit the number of potential partners. Mm -hmm. I see that there's a lot there. Is, there. is that a natural strategy for a smaller event to go after more Uh, more logos, more sponsors for smaller tickets? Or was it a decision that was taken before actually reaching out to the, all those different brands? Um, there wasn't a, there's not a strategy in place to have X number of sponsors. So we didn't have a, we also didn't really have a, a plan of, okay, we have tier A, B, C, and D. We wanted to go to the market and just talk to people and create partnerships based on what they're after. Um, so I think that's probably the key differential that we, when we talk to people, we say, well, we, these are some of the rights, but we don't know what you need. Let's create something together. Um, and actually Kazoo is the principal partner, but that initially wasn't, wasn't a level that we had in mind, but it just turned out that that, that was really important for them. So we created that um, and developed it. Um, mm. All right. In terms of the other ones, I think, And so it's very much tailor-made to a certain extent. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You go out and... Okay. Correct. And the, the other partners have specific areas they help the tournament with or align with. So if there's a logistics partner, we need logistics or a legal partner that's very supportive mm. on the legal side. So there's clear areas that we work with those sponsors on. Is, is in-kind, so if I refer to those like in-kind services, is it huge part of partnerships today or is it like is it on the side or does it depend on the scale of the of the competition and maybe of of the deal you, you you're doing but do do we have all these in kind always present and to which extent i mean i don't know the percentage or if there is any percentage but i would be interested to know a bit more um I mean, yes, definitely in place. In terms of a percentage, it's kind of impossible to say because it will vary by sport mm -hmm. and by tournament and by team um, and by sector as well. I mean, some sectors will lend themselves more to clearly to in-kind products. Um, but it, it's definitely important for, definitely for the rights owner because they save budget for, for what they're trying yeah. to achieve. And clearly for the sponsor, it's always important to show that showcase their product being used and say, Hey, look by drinking this or by using that, look up the players did an amazing job. We won the championship or mm. whatever the story might be. It's more brand associations for them as well. Yeah. You know, everywhere. It, yeah. Association and storytelling as well as, as, as much as, but then if clearly on the business side of it, it's, it's important for them to be able to generate revenue as well. So it kind of ticks a lot mm. of boxes. Yeah. If we are thinking of a drinking or even like a an apparel or just like a fashion yeah, fashion or, brand. Or, yeah. or more into if you if you're more into into like motorsports and to B2B in like cybersecurity, data protection, 
just ways that kind of help mm. protect teams, but give them use cases and case studies and able to sell to different things. So mm. there's, there's tons. And then they have the brand equity to showcase that, yeah, we have this client or this use case and, and we're great. Okay. Exactly. So yeah, it's, it's a very important part of it. I, I'd struggle to give a percentage, but it's, it's, it's important. Yeah. Uh, me, I just wanted to go back a bit on one thing you said is, uh, and to pick up your brain on that is, okay, the partners or the brands come in and they have their objectives and everything, but on the other side of the table, and that's something else I want to ask you because you've been on both sides of the table, but um, for you, I wanted to ask you a bit, not prediction of the future, but how do you see the need for sports organizations to potentially evolve or how, how they can make sure to meet the requirements from not from new brands, but from new activations or new sorts of sponsorships, which are called today it's partnerships. But how do you see that in terms of, is there a gap? And if there is one, like how can sports organizations and rights owners be more uh, in the shoes of the partners or trying to, to help them achieve their objectives? Big question. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, good question as well. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the grill. I mean, we, we're doing the same. I mean, we, we're trying to help sports organizations or we're trying to help also brands to, to leverage new activations. And this is something also sometimes in full transparency and honesty, it's, you feel like there is two worlds or they are not speaking the same languages or they are not living within the same reality. So yeah. I, I was just curious to hear from you in terms of, okay, how, how do you manage, because you are in between those two, actually, mm. you are representing, I mean, and, and you are trying to, to make it a win-win, as you were saying, but sometimes, you know, it's, it's not the same language, not the same skills, yeah. not the same expectations. So how do you I, uh, yeah, bridge the gap? I guess the, I guess the biggest difference is always around, certainly around digital and, and data, I, I think is the biggest difference because if you look at the way brands invest their marketing these days is clearly driven by that predominantly driven by digital, let's say, and generally sports sponsorship offerings don't match up. If you, if you look at the percentage of a brand, what they spend on digital versus what the percentage of the digital offering is in a sponsorship package, they won't match necessarily. Mm. So I think that's always the thing that you're trying to bridge. And there's not, okay. a, there's not a one-size-fits-all, I don't think. It's just it's just trying to accelerate the change. I think COVID, has, as I mentioned earlier, has probably helped to some degree because sports have had to act quicker and develop things mm. faster. Um, but, also, but what would be, I don't know the recipe, but what would be, if you have one or two tips in terms of, imagine I'm a federation or I'm a club like Reading, or I don't, mm. obviously it depends on, on the resources you have internally, the objectives you have, and and the brand you have and the competitions you are in, but imagine, I don't know if you are the FA and not necessarily a big one like the IOC or, or UEFA, but what, what would be the first one, two tips in terms of, okay, how can we make sure we, we bridge that gap or we make ourselves relevant to the new demands of the, of the sponsors, of the brands? I guess even the way you talk about yourself is like talking the way a brand talks and just pitching in their language a little bit. Um, and also customizing what you offer to brands as well. Um, that sounds stupid, but we see so many proposals that just, not even proposals, but decks that might be 20 pages about the sport and about their history and heritage and 
which is interesting and okay, but it doesn't answer the question, how does that help? How does it help the brand? You need to get the brand's attention of this is why you should sponsor us. It can help you sell X, Y, Z or raise your brand or do just, just cut. I, I am picturing you as you're talking in front of a deck, like you've just received like, cool, that, <laughs> that's cool for the historic classes or whatever, but I don't, I don't really care about that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Do you find that as well? Do you see, uh, I don't know if you, have you, yeah, it's it's a bit like too much maybe on the history or the traditions, but on our side, it's it's more the how do you activate or how do you try to actually help sports organizations to leverage new technologies or what you were saying in terms of data or the digital space in terms of making sure you drive ROI for, for these partners or for what you're trying to achieve, but at least you try to to know exactly and to to have some kind of a proof. Uh, but the thing is, usually people don't necessarily understand it. Or I would not be, maybe with COVID, like you were saying, there has been a um, clearly a change. And because people have had to activate with um, fans at home and all this kind of stuff. So they had to move to digital uh, because they had to, uh, to actually activate the partnership and to make sure that there is a win as well for the brands. But it's more, I think, it, it, might, it might go back to what you were saying in terms of culture as well. So I was thinking about it from, from you because you've been within sports organizations and different ones in different sports, and now you're on the other side of the table. So I was just like curious to see like what's your take on how do you find it different, like being within a right owner or within a sports organization and on the other side of the table – being like representative of a brand or 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 in a consultancy. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I guess the 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 frustration is that you can't impact change if you're talking to a rights owner. You can clearly advise and suggest things, but you can't necessarily impact change, which can be the frustration. Um, but you, you but are you free to say whatever you want? <laughs> Yeah, within reason, as long as, you know, I'm, I'm English and I'm diplomatic, so that's, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> as always. <laughs> but, yeah, you, you can, and I guess that's the benefit that you can you can advise people and, and say what you think. Um, hmm. but I think um, it, it also, culture is a good point, and it goes back to having support within the organization and someone at quite a senior level that might support and champion it because people have a – probably miss I don't know, a misconception about how complicated it is and it's probably just a question of speaking to a, a few people or even not necessarily agencies but people you might know that can explain it and just explain what a simple strategy in sort of data and crm strategy could help you do and what you need to do and try and break it down and make it a bit more digestible as well rather than getting probably i don't know scared off by it but by, by it being too big almost yeah, I see. Um, yeah, I mean, I fully, I fully agree, and it's it's also funny to. I'm just at the start of my journey, being on the on the other side of the table, but I quite, I would tend to agree with, with what you've said. Um, if I if I'm pushing a bit and doing a bit of not like crystal ball question, but Kel, uh, uh, I wanted to ask you a bit more for our listeners and even for myself because I'm quite interested. It's like. How do you see the future for, uh, for brands and sports organizations? I mean, you've talked a lot around data and the digital space and how COVID-19 has impacted it and accelerated things, but 
over the next months and years, what, what do you see, yeah, the relationship or like the partnerships be morphing into mm -hmm. uh, between those two entities? I mean, generally, I see it as positive and healthy. And I mm -hmm. think, again, not dominating everything with COVID, but COVID, COVID has shown how much people need sport and want sport. And that's only a positive thing for, for brands as well because it helps them create an emotional connection with an audience. Mm. And that sport is one of the few things that can do that and do it at scale as well. So I think generally it's kind of healthy and you, you, you just feel people desperate to get back to sport with, with Euros coming soon and then clearly Rugby League World Cup following, uh, following soon, soon after. But um, yeah. <laughs> so I think gen generally healthy and desperate for, for sport to continue. In terms of how that looks between brands and rights owners, I, I think it just will continue to evolve as, as rights owners get smarter and have more advanced data and how data and AI tools sort of go across all areas of the business. And just, mm. yeah. So I, I only see sort of positive things, but it's going to be sort of playing catch up a little bit. I, I still think the sort of rights owners playing catch up a bit. Okay. Because one thing you've, you've said is, and that's why I think sports is within the entertainment industry. Mm. It's like, Sports is, is more than just sports. It's the social things where you create stories and, and part of any entertainment business is you have these stories, you story, you story tell them, and then you monetize them. But on the third piece and which is the final, final stage is, okay, how brands can help rights holders to actually monetize those. Okay, guys, uh, thank you very much for this spot. Um, Kevin, that was very much interesting. Uh, uh, I don't know if you have any comments or remark as well. Uh, no, just to say thank you both. It was uh, it was good to have a chat, and sort of time has flown by, which is always a good thing. Um, <laughs> so no, it was good to good to good to chat with you both, and um, look forward to hearing the hearing the pod, and happy to answer any more questions that your listeners may have as well. Cool. All right. So without further ado, I think I will I will end up here, and uh, thank you everyone for for listening to us, and we'll be back on soon with a new podcast in the future. Thanks, everyone. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Kevin. Thanks very much. Le Corner.